Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get started. Straight from New York. Yo, yo, this handsome ass. You are now tuned in to Al Joe the Funk Master. Watch your grill, yoga, knock out cold faster. Talking shit, now we talking facts. Where the mountain off the back, you in trouble, came to burst your bubble. I don't shelter punches. They find home on your mind about the devil. This the weekly scraps. You don't need a map. GPS, I'm right here to lead a dash. The world doesn't know it needs, but I grow the seeds. Planet, fuck a name and the fame. Only legacy remains. Remember the name, Al Jermaine Sterling. Uh, it ain't shit, it ain't shit, motherfucker. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the weekly scraps, episode 129, I think. Um, either way, it doesn't matter. We had a great fight card this past weekend, UFC 262, and we now have a new lightweight kingpin of the division. Charles Oliveira, a.k.a. Mr. Dubronx, who went out there and got it done with the shimmy-style points. Electrifying fight from beginning to end. Um, this is exactly what we signed up for when we put these two guys together. And I keep saying we like I'm part of the UFC company in the sense of like I have part ownership or something, but I, I, I don't. <laughs> but um, this is what we fight fans expected when these two guys were going to be matched up together to fight for the vacant lightweight uh Type of strap, and they delivered exactly what they said. Michael Chandler, I'm here for a good time, not for a long time. Obviously, this time he played uh, against him in this in this matchup, but man, from beginning to end, it, it as long as the fight lasted, it was super exciting. Uh, part of my DraftKings pick was fulfilled. This fight lasted under two and a half rounds, but uh, my fight pick with Jacare, unfortunately, that one didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go, and uh, we're going to get into that. But before we do that, great week of PT. Um, got to hit the bag, get some rounds in, did some rounds of footwork, trying to get the cardio back into order, kicking everything back into gear. My neurological uh, neurons are now firing again, trying to get everything back and coordinated. If you guys follow with uh, Chris Weidman, what he's doing when he's trying to teach his body kind of how to walk again, very similar to that, trying to figure out how to get my triceps to start firing again in the terms of I, I had some muscle atrophy after, well, before the surgery and then after the surgery, I still had to, um, you still got to kind of regrow those muscles and teach your body again how to kind of reset and, and fire. So that's where I'm at. Um, I am going to this restaurant called Becca's. It's one of my favorite spots out here. I love the food. The chefs, one of the chefs, he's from Brooklyn. So he makes some phenomenal pizza. I forgot to take my freaking retainers out again. And it causes me to build up an extra amount of saliva, which is super annoying because then I have to swallow, pause on this thing, which is annoying because I know sometimes people have told me like they can hear it, which I don't, if you didn't hear it, damn, I just caused some major attraction to it. So hopefully you guys don't notice that. But um, one of my favorite restaurants, we got to hang out with um, my realtor, Jason Griggs. So if you guys do need some help with any real estate um, endeavors out here, that's the guy to go to. He helped me find this house out here in Vegas. And he's also from Long Island, Strong Island, Long Island, baby. So we're hanging out. Uh, his brother and I uh, hung out with also the owner and Teofima's dad. He was in the building, and I got introduced to him. Long story short, he's a great dude, very energetic, very charismatic, and he is an enigma, to say the least. And we had a great time uh, for as long as we did talk, and... Um, Supposed to be going out to his gym this week. We'll see what happens. Uh, I'm not really in the greatest of shape, so I don't know what he's really expecting of me. He wants to show me a couple of things, which would be cool. I'm always a student of the game. I love learning, especially from someone uh, who's coaching his son, Teofimo Lopez, who's on a tear right now and is one of the best guys pound for pound right now, in my personal opinion. So for him to want to take his time out to show me something, I'm like, hey, man, I'll definitely come learn. I could definitely learn something from the, the sweet science of boxing where it's completely different from MMA, where it's just boxing, you know? So if there's anything I can pick up, definitely going to try to keep it in a tool bag and see what type of information and knowledge I can absorb out there. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I got to try to coordinate with him to see when we're going to be, be able to actually go out and make that happen. So other than that, uh, let's get into this fight card. And yeah, so hopefully I can do that this week and I can get some pad work in with our with my man um Eric Nixick. 
Because like I said last week, I got cleared to hit pads, but I wanted to give it a little bit more time. So I've been hitting the bag, kind of shadow boxing, just getting some footwork and stuff like that. And the range of motion is amazing for those who have been asking. Yeah, I'm almost pretty much back as, as 100% as it gets. I can turn both ways, up and down, no pain. Flexion is still a little bit tight. I don't force it, but I can feel the stretch in the back. But again, no pain. And the doctor did say like the C67 will straighten out the rest of my cervical spine because it was a little bit, um, didn't have the natural curvature that it's supposed to have because of all the damage and wear and tear I've had since 2008. Uh, so he showed me what it should look like and what mine looked like. I and mean, you could see the difference. And he said, this will help straighten out the other one. And it would help actually my damaged C5, C6. Because I had damage on both those levels. But the C67 was the real culprit and really the one that's causing all that trigger point in the fingers and in uh, my triceps. So um, as of right now, it seems like I have no more issues with the C5, C6. And I'm hoping, knock on wood, something that uh, I don't ever have to worry about. Because he did say in... in Retrospect, in hind in long term, worst case scenario, if things were to go back or get worse again, it would be the C5, C6, and I would have to just get that done and blah blah blah. So hopefully that's not the case, and everything could just be all good and dandy and going from there. All right, let's let's get into this this main event. Oh man, oh man, oh man. Then not even a discussion, man. This <laughs> Michael Chandler came out. Did what Michael Chandler does. He comes out guns blazing and he brings the heat right out of the gate. And he's had success in the past. He's had some failures in the past. And here we see the success in the early goings. And then sure enough, in that second round, I did say I got Chandler to win. But if Oliveira can survive the first round, and it's not like the first round, it was, I don't want to say it was a blowout. But he got clipped, and then Chandler didn't take his foot off the gas. Okay. But I said if he can get out of that first round, I like his chances the longer the fight goes on. Because I just feel like even though Chandler's always in great, phenomenal shape, and he's been in these five-round wars before, I just think the longer the fight goes, Oliveira just seems to find a way to, to win. Did, did my, camera, my second camera just died? Oh, all right. So we just got the one camera right now. So whatever. So Chandler... Gets into this position, he cracks him with the left hook, stuns him, has Oliveira reeling backward. Oliveira decides to shoot in. He gets this, he gets in on a beautiful double leg, and Chandler jumps on the guillotine as he's on his way down, and looks like oh this could be game over. And I'm in my head, I'm like I'm standing up out the couch, and I'm like there's no way in hell Michael Chandler is gonna tap out Charles Oliveira with the guillotine. I just can't see it. Not in the first round, maybe when he's tired or so in the in the later goings of the fight, but. Chandler doesn't hit guillotines. I mean, he's got those big jack biceps, but it's Charles Oliveira. The guy has the most submission wins in UFC history right now. I just don't think that's going to happen. It can. I've seen crazier things. We've all seen crazier things, but I just don't think it's going to happen for this. He gets out, pops his head out, takes his back, and then you see him start to go in this one-on-one grip, uh, two-on-one grip, and you think he's about to get the second hook, and then he does get the second hook in. And I'm thinking he's about to get the rear naked choke. And then he does, and then he doesn't get the rear naked choke. Chandler stands up, slams him to his back. And I did think two things. It's either he's gonna knock out Charles Oliveira with that when he did that, or he's gonna be stuck in that position for a little bit, um, a little bit longer of, of some time. Eventually, Chandler does the right thing, gets the two-on-one, prevents the choke, keeps his shoulder to the mat, which is what you want to do. You want to try to look your opponent in the in the eyes. But Oliveira did a great job with that left, with that left foot butterfly right behind the knee of, of Michael Chandler, trying to keep him ele that leg elevated so that he couldn't turn in. But eventually, Chandler was able to get his shoulders to the mat and hit an explosive wrestling turn-in. Um, it's not a traditional, tradi traditional wrestling move, but it is an explosiveness of a compact wrestler like a guy like Michael Chandler. We get in those positions where guys are throwing in the boots and they turn, they're trying to power half us, so which is a power half is I put my... So say I'm on your back and I'm trying to turn you for points and get back exposure because on wrestling, we don't give our back to the mat. If we do, we give up points. So Chandler, so just imagine a power half. I got my forearm in the back of your head. I take my right hand and I go under your right armpit and I go bone on bone or I go palm to palm or whatever or S grip. And then I start to crank at the crook of where your shoulder and your, your torso meet right here. 
and I put pressure on the back of your head and I try to stuff your head under your armpit while I jack up your shoulder and try to make you look through your armpit and crush the shit out of your, 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 shoulder, your shoulder joint and just puts a lot of pressure on the neck and the, and the shoulder, whatever. And we wait for that position when we're about to get turned and we try to go two on one if we can and then we try to explode and turn in. He, he, that's pretty much what Michael Chandler did. Ended up in the guard, then came up to his feet. Charles Oliveira, obviously using the up kicks. Very dangerous position for Michael Chandler because I, I was like, why not just back up and let him, let him get up? But then when he let him up, he caught him again. He caught him again. And this is where Oliveira kind of just, you know, he backed up. And I thought it was going to be like a Michael Chandler, Dan Hooker, where he's sitting there on his knees and just ripping these big, powerful shots. And Oliveira would manage to pull guard again. And do the same thing, kind of flop to his back and use the kicks, keep him away, keep his distance, tie him up. And I was just like, damn, Chandler, just stand up. Because if you stand up, I think you have more chance, a better chance or higher percentage to knock him out on the feet. Um, because you could every time you hurt him, he keeps dropping to his knees to pull, pull guard. You keep standing him up, just keep chipping away at that, that energy bar. Like if this was Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, whatever video game you're playing, they're chipping away at that energy bar. And eventually there's going to be a point of no return where you damage him so much where it doesn't matter how much he pulls guard or how much he tries to tie you up, he's not going to have any energy left to really finish any type of submission in any of those positions. So that was the one mistake I said Chandler made. Other than that, we still don't know because... He was landing some decent ground and pound, nothing crazy, but it was decent. But I do think if he stood him up, I mean, I think that fight's over in the, in the first round. And Chandler's getting his hands raised instead of Charles Oliveira. Now, Oliveira comes back in that second round, and he measures with the jab, and then he steps in. They both go two, and they come back with the three. The difference here, Oliveira's right hand is on his chin. Michael Chandler throws the hook and comes back up. Right hand is down. Gets clipped, drops, turns. And again, this fight happened so fast, but there was so much beautiful technique. I, I love that Rogan and those guys are pointing it out, that Charles Oliveira is super clean with everything that he does, very technical, and he doesn't take as much damage as he used to in the past. Um, unless you just managed to get through his defense like Chandler did when he touched him with that left hook, he, he went immediately for a shot because he felt something. He felt something. Something scary about when Chandler winds up that Mike Tyson, Iron Mike, left hook. Um, once he cracked him... Didn't let him, didn't let his foot off the gas, backed him up against the cage, kept his range, beautiful right hand, and then caught him again with another left. It was, it was a beautiful finish for Charles Oliveira. Once, Char once Chandler was hurt, you could see the difference that Oliveira, he's hurt. He can pull guard, try to tie you up, slow down the fight, use his long legs and limbs and keep you away, keep you at bay, you threaten with some up kicks and threaten with leg locks and all kinds of things. He, there was even a point in the first round where Charles Oliveira went reverse De La Hiva where he tried to go and grab the ankle and tried to um, get up on his left shoulder and try to threaten to come in and uh, take the back or enter into a leg lock entry. But Chandler was able to shut that down because there's no gi, so you can't really hop over and take the... It's harder. It's a lot harder. But it's just impressive that he even tried to do that against a guy who's as strong as a guy like Michael Chandler. But again, once he had Chandler hurt, it, that was pretty much it. Um, that's the difference. I think when he's hurt... He has options where Chandler gets hurt or most other guys because there's not a lot of high-level BJJ guys in the UFC who are like a Charles Oliveira, a Jacare, and apparently this guy Muniz, uh, a Mackenzie Dern. There's not a lot of people who are like that who is crafty enough when they get on their back or they get hurt in a little bit of danger. They can re resort to the art of jujitsu and try to protect themselves like that. Now, like I said... Uh, I think this was a great fight. It was everything as advertised. The only thing uh, I, I didn't like, I think people were criticizing Chandler and saying that's the difference between a high-level Bellator guy versus a high-level UFC guy. Eh, I think that's a little unfair to say. Chandler fights like that all the time. He's beat a guy like Eddie Alvarez. Eddie Alvarez was also a UFC champion in the lightweight division, which, was, which is also stacked. So we see these things and you, you try to make these comparisons. And I think it's a little unfair to, to, to say that and to take that away from him. Chandler is an all-or-nothing kind of fighter. He's not looking to win on points or decision. He's looking to take you out if he can take you out. Watch his track record. And I think if he fought in the UFC from the very get-go, I think it would have been the same thing. Like he says, man, I'm here for a good time, not for a long time. And I think that reputation is what he's made his name off of. And that reputation is why he got signed. And I think that's why he got to where he is now. And... 
He decimated a guy like Dan Hooker, who we think, and I still think, is a very, very tough out for anybody. Um, I think he might have caught Dan Hooker at the right time in terms of Dan Hooker's probably like, I don't need to be in these barn burner fights anymore. Edson Barboza, Dustin Poirier, Paul Felder. I don't think I really want to be in these shootouts anymore. So I think he might have caught him at the right time where he's like, ah, I can try to fight a lot smarter and try to win these fights a lot more technical without taking these damages. And I think that, that, that this type of damage, and I think that kind of made him a little bit more gun-shy in that fight with Michael Chandler. That's just my personal opinion. Um, timing is everything. So, uh, like I said, I think Chandler is still one of the best guys. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens next for him, though, because there's guys like Justin Gaethje in the, winds, uh, in the wings. Um, you had Dustin Poirier taking on Conor McGregor. Whoever wins that, I think fights for the title next. I, I think it would be ill-advised if Poirier can win that trilogy and not go fight for the title. I think at that point, he should and has to, to keep that division moving along with the top-tier competitors. And I just think it gets to a point where you'd want to be the undisputed champion, not just the interim, you know? So I do think uh, after that, whoever wins will be fighting for the title next, and I think it could be big, big payday for whoever comes out of that victorious. Now, it's just, I think Chandler and Gaethje are in a weird position, so I don't know what's going to happen. Now, transitioning into the co-main event, we have Benil Darius versus Tony Ferguson. Changing of the guards. Now, a couple of things. Very short and sweet in terms of an analysis of this fight. Very technical approach from Benil Darius. He did exactly what he needed to do to win. He didn't get too crazy. This was the most technical fight I think he's had in a very long time out of all his wins, in my personal opinion. Didn't take almost any damage whatsoever and fought to his strengths when he got Tony on the ground, managed to control him, stay out of most dangerous positions, had some very threatening submission attempts, which is still mind-blowing how Tony didn't tap to that. He didn't tap to the armbar of Charles Oliveira. Crazy. So this goes to the testament of who Tony Ferguson is. And I'm always going to be a Tony Ferguson fan of all the, the body of work that he's done to get to where he has gotten. Nothing short of impressive. There's not many guys who could go on a run like a Tony Ferguson type of run. Um, but going back to Darius, beautiful head and arm control with the shoulder pressure, maintaining his positioning in the north-south, neutralizing any type of Baron Bolo or 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu, uh, Eddie Bravo system type rubber guard attack. Uh, basic fundamental jiu-jitsu, uh, good striking on the feet, good pressure and entries with his takedown attempts, and then getting the fight to the ground where he needed to get down. Tony Ferguson just seemed like he was a half bit slower, didn't really have the answer, and I think I have a couple of analysis, analysis like a, I guess, what would you even call it? I have a couple of um, ration, rational, rationales. A couple of reasonings why I think that uh, this might be happening to Tony. Okay, father time, we could say that. That's fair to say. Um, we've seen Tony Ferguson fight a guy like Lando Venado on Lando Venado's UFC debut. Wasn't the most technical Tony Ferguson fight where he was getting outstruck, and I think he even got dropped more times than I think I've seen him in a very long time get dropped in a single fight. And uh, maybe we could say Tony Ferguson's technical skills haven't always been as great. Okay, I think that's fair to say as well. And I think people are starting to realize that if you could just avoid the chaos of Tony and you could control him in the clinch on the ground, you could win that fight. On the feet, it seemed like this was the first time I've ever seen Tony Ferguson reluctant to want to grapple. Where normally he's okay with hitting the Granby rolls, which he did hit this in a couple of times in this fight, but I think when you get a guy like who's as high level as Darius, He's able to maintain control and not get in these scrambles where he ends up getting cut with um, rabbit elbows and all kinds of craziness and ends up in these submissions where he's getting darts choked from the El Kukui. So I, I, I think a couple of, th of those things, I think the competition is getting smarter and I think they're onto his game when you're at the top of the division, everyone's studying you and they're trying to catch you. And I think this is probably one of those things and situations for a guy like Tony Ferguson fighting these young guys Charles Oliveira, 31, Benil Darius, who's not the youngest, but, you know, he's still a younger cat right now in comparison to Tony Ferguson. And I think that could be the other situation where it's just, 
Father time is catching up. The skill set is catching up of everybody else. You've been the top for a long time. Everyone's scouting you as, as opposed to you scouting everybody. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't take any, I, people are saying like Tony's done. I don't, I don't necessarily know if I buy that. I just think he's fighting the best guys in this division. And I don't know where he goes from here. But I would imagine they're going to give him a big step down in competition. And if he can win that, I think if they give him a killer, it might be tough. Uh, I mean, I can see him fighting a guy like a Drew Dober or... Uh, I mean, Gregor Gillespie, I think in terms of the, the gas tank, I think Gillespie at this point might win that fight. Um... I don't know, you know, so th there's a couple of names. That division is so stacked. That I, they can find someone who he, who he can compete with, and it's just one of those things where if he just can't get it done at that point, then maybe it is time for him to, to consider other options. Uh, I think he still has a great MMA mind, and we have to see where he goes next. And whatever he does, man, I'm always going to be a Tony fan and supporter of his, you know, Tony Ferguson, uh, the boogeyman, El Kukui, he's always going to be that guy to me. Um, next up... This match now fight versus Bonterin. This was a really close fight. I, I didn't even know which way it was going to go. I felt like Bonterin was controlling, though, because he's the one to keep going forward. But then you had, like, the volume versus the power exchanges. The volume of match now and then the power exchanges of Bonterin. So I was like, we've seen this story before in, the, in this fight car in particular with uh, Lando Venata and... Um, Grundy, I think his name is. Let me, let me check. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, yeah, Mike Grundy. So yeah, I, I really wasn't sure how this fight was going to play out in terms of the judges' decision, but I think the right guy won, even though I was pulling for Matt Schnell, but it's just one of those things. Sometimes the judges score the opposite. I think it may be the volume and if Schnell was pushing forward a little bit more, I think maybe he would have been the one who ended up getting his hand raised. And now this next one, this one was really tough for me. Uh, Caitlin Chukagan. Uh, with Vivian Arujo. This was an interesting fight because the first round, I felt like the first two minutes, Vivian was controlling for the most part, pushing forward, landing the bigger shots. Caitlin was kind of on the, the pedal a little bit, getting pushed around a little bit. Um not really finding much success, getting caught with that left hook from time to time again in that first round, like the first two, two and a half minutes. Then Caitlin started to land a little bit more, but Vivian was still landing. Tough one to call, but then she got pushed against the cage. Um, Caitlin did. So I wasn't sure how the judges were scoring that. I was like, Vivian's getting control time against the cage. She won the first two minutes, the first round. I think Caitlyn might be behind. You can make the argument for this round was super close and maybe that's a 10-10 round, but we almost never see that. This is just the way I'm thinking of it. Second round, more or less the same thing. Caitlyn gets taken down. She's getting outstruck again. And then after she gets taken down, she gets up and escapes, does a great job of not taking much damage on the ground. When she gets to the feet, she's on attack mode on Vivian the entire time and gets up with a beautiful combination flurry. Lands a, a, a knee to the head when they're breaking and getting back up on the on the when they're on the feet and Vivian's trying to get up. Caitlyn lands a beautiful knee and then she flurries with the combination. I'm like, okay, now this is interesting because we're halfway through the second round and now Caitlyn's starting to look like she's the one taking over from the fight. But do you discredit everything that happened before that? I don't know. So you still got the argument of arouse Vivian. You still got the argument of her laying the harder strikes in that second round in the first half. And in the second half, you know, obviously the takedown, she got the takedown, but she didn't do much with it. Caitlin gets up, and then she starts to have her way. I don't want to say she pummeled her, but she started to land a lot more significant strikes, and almost, I think she doubled up. And from the strike count, even though I really do think that's usually inaccurate, I do think it was correct in the sense that Caitlin did land more in the second round, especially in that last half waypoint of that second round. So I think when I look at that, I go, okay, that's a very close round again. Given the circumstances, do you discredit everything that happened in the first half of that round? You can make the argument that that, that round is a 10-10 again based on the body of work from both females. But 
I started to lean. Maybe Caitlin got that got that done with the flurries and being a little bit more definitive, the better footwork and ringmanship and body language shouldn't count for scoring. I only score what was done. Who is being more effective? I think Caitlin started to become more effective in the second half of that first second round. And then the third round, it was all pretty much Caitlin Chukagan. So I I think there might have been a 130-27 in there. Where I think I was like really, really confused by that. Um, or maybe I'm just thinking the Mike Grundy fight again. But either way, it was a fun fight. Caitlin got the nod. That's who I was going for. But it was it's just one of these things that I just don't know what judges are looking at for scoring. I really don't. I thought I, I thought it was getting better. And I think maybe it's just a state-by-state -state basis. Um, I can't say the judges got this wrong. I can't say definitively to definitively they got it right. Caitlin hands down won the third round, was fighting lights out in that round, landing at will, kind of getting style points and doing what she wanted to do. Looked great. Those push kicks, side kicks, and uh, uh, the, the front kicks and teeps that she was landing, all that beautiful stuff, beautiful jabs, leaning forward, hitting the jab, and then coming with the cross instead of the jab where it looked like she was going to hit with the jab and then, boom, stung her with the cross and then getting out of there with the footwork. I, I thought she had a phenomenal fight and performance, um, but I thought Vivian fought just as well. And with that being said, I, I just didn't know who was going to win. And I'm surprised this was unanimous. I thought it would have been a split, but the person that I thought, I don't know. It was, a, it, was a, it was a good fight. It was a good, fun fight, either way. Now this next one, Edson Barbosa versus Shane Burgos. This one was a barn burner, and it was everything as advertised. I, I don't know if these guys got fight of the night. They should have. I didn't get to check. I hope they did. Mm. Well, it doesn't really say right here. Uh, Barbosa, as we said, man, he came out with the calf kicks, doing everything he needed to do. Fight of the night, Shane Burgos versus Edson Barbosa. Okay, I scrolled down, and it was right there. So... He did everything he needed to do, fought well, landed the calf kicks. Burgos started to change his gears with landing calf kicks in that second round. And I think that was a smart thing to do. And I almost wonder, like, how much dividends that would have paid if he had started the fight doing that as opposed to just trying to walk him down and just box the entire time. And I did say I think the difference would be the calf kicks and the leg kicks of Barbosa, the diversity of how he decides to kick. Um, when you're one-dimensional, and it's a, it's a very, very diverse one-dimensional in terms of how credible and how good Shane Burgos is with his boxing, how clean. But when you're one-dimensional, you're one-dimensional. When you only have to worry about one thing from your opponent, it makes it a lot easier to prepare because there is no surprise element of what if he might do this. You know what you're going to get. You know what you need to do. And it's either you're prepared or you're not prepared for that type of um, fight and approach. I think Barbosa did what he had to do. Burgos landed some great shots when he needed to land them and got in there where it looked like he hurt Barbosa pretty well, going to the body, ripping a couple shots. Beautiful boxing. But the footwork and the kicks of Edson is what was the difference for me. And this was crazy because when he hit him in that third round with that, it, it felt like a right hook slash overhand right. Caught him flush on the chin, turned the whole head. Now, he connects... Burgos looks like the Terminator where he's still coming forward. And then literally like three seconds later, it's like his brain goes, Doop. my bad. I forgot to tell you your body that that shit actually hurt. I need to take a step back. My equilibrium's a little off. You're rocked. I don't know what happened. My nervous system is kind of malfunctioning right now. He stumbles. It kind of goes, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. He stumbles backwards. And then Barbosa is almost like he has like a, wait, he's looking around kind of like, is this man for real? Is he playing possum? I don't know. I've never seen that before. Then he goes for the kill, lands in one, I think it was like one or two shots, and then the ref jumps in. I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I, all I can say is I've never seen it before, and MMA is just one of those sports where, where we just keep getting surprised over and over and over again, and that's why I love this sport. And it goes to show you that we don't know the effects and the impact of strikes when people are in there fighting. It's hard to say what that strike is doing to this person, what that same strike might do to this person. Everyone's brain is different. Everyone takes damage different, differently. Everyone feels things differently. It's just the way we are wired. 
this position might feel better for you. This striking attack might feel better for you. You might throw it a little bit differently and it might come up a little bit differently. The way your body is statured is different from my body stature. So the way you take, it, it, it's just different. We're all different individuals. And um, with that being said, man, it, it, that, that was a tough one, man, because it felt the fight was so good, you know. It like I said, it was as advertised. We knew this is what we get when a when the hurricane steps in the octagon with anybody, and for him to step in there with a guy like Barbosa, huge opportunity for both guys to stake their claim in this featherweight division, which is stacked, and get the division moving again. Um, I don't know, man. I, I felt bad for Burgos because that was a huge, huge shot. Uh, hopefully, he's okay in the terms of like the long term effects because. Like I said, man, we've never seen anything like that. For him to kind of, his brain register to strike like that, it makes you wonder, like, all the other strike strikes that he's taking in terms of impact to the head, what that could do to a man psychologically and physically in the long term. Because obviously that happened where you get punched and it's like, you're okay, but then three seconds later your body shuts down randomly. That's, that's pretty freaking scary if you guys don't think about it. If you think about it like that, that's some scary ass shit. Like, honestly, if someone can hit you in the daytime and then later on, a couple hours later, your body just acts funny and you go into this point where you're kind of just throwing up and puking and you start getting spins or you get vertigo, you kind of have to question like, yo, I got to be careful with what I'm doing in this sport. And obviously we sign up for this, but I'm just trying to give you guys perspective on this sport and the damage that it does, like you never know the type of impact that people are, are going through or what they're feeling. And people kept bringing up me in this situation. That's how you recover, get up and whatever. I'm like, dude, this is, this is goes entirely to my point in terms of impact and damage. I got hit in the head. I was rocked. I was dizzy. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what I got hit with. The only thing I could assume was I got hit with the knee and I was pretty rattled. I knew if I try to stand up, I'm like, yo, I'm going to fall over. Let me lay down on the ground and try to recover. I took my time. I asked how much time was, was left so that I could try to recover as best as I can and try to continue to fight, thinking that I would never get another title shot anytime soon if um, they deemed this a no contest. Uh, thankfully, it, it didn't go that way. Obviously, if a fight's in a situation where you're losing and you can just get hit a disqualifying move, you could always have a no contest and then just have no clarity in the fight, whether you're winning or losing. I think that's rather silly. I think the rules need to be enforced. So I think that was the right call in terms of a disqualification because otherwise people are going to just keep doing that kind of thing whenever the back is against the ropes and they're losing the fight. You have to have some type of thing to, to not give people an incentive. Like if you cheat, it's okay. You'll get a freebie and get to, get a redo kind of thing, you know? So... Um, going back to that, the ref didn't give me my full time to recover. And I think that was the right call as well to take it out of my hands, even though I did want, because what I think everything in terms of the whole picture, what I thought was going to happen, everything I was trying to process while I'm sitting there trying to recover, uh, I try to do whatever I could do to stay in the fight. Long story short, I didn't know how that shot was going to affect me later on. I, I ended up throwing up. And this is where I, I go to say, like, we don't know how the shot may affect Burgos in the long run. That could be the, the shot that could break the camel's back. Hopefully it's not. Hopefully it's not so we can get more entertaining fights like that from Shane Burgos. And hopefully he gets his hand raised a couple more times in the UFC octagon. But it just goes to show you how devastating this sport can really be. Because you just never know. Like, even the girl who got kicked with the, the up kick. And people were saying, oh, she got grazed. I'm like, you guys are morons if you think she got grazed. She's a down opponent. She didn't expect the strike. It came out of nowhere. And the ones you don't see always hurt the most. And to, to discredit her when she was winning and dominating the fight against Ronda Marcos, it's a little silly to say she wanted a way out and she was acting. That doesn't make any sense. The fight just started. She was dominating from beginning to end, having a way, throwing her around, winning on the feet with the striking. Why would she want an easy way out? She wants to get her highlights. She wants to look good. And she wants to definitively say, I am the next female in line for the next upper echelon of this division and keep upon her name for it so she can eventually fight for a world title. Shane Burroughs, 
same thing, man. I just, like I said, I just hope he's okay. And again, this is a very uh, dangerous sport. And this, this stuff like that, like I said, it just freaked me out because I've never seen that before, man. It's like a onset delayed soreness. When you lift weights, you don't feel it the next day, but you feel it two days later. It's like, it's like that. You, you took a shot, you didn't feel it. You felt it three seconds later, and then your body registered that, oh, it's time to shut down. Hey, I'm sorry, Tony Stark. It's time to shut down. Iron Man's going to sleep. I, I only have 5% left in his battery. We have to protect ourselves. That's pretty much what happened with Shane Burgos in that moment, and it was a bizarre thing. And hopefully we don't see that too, too often because, dude, that was eerie. Eerie as hell. And, again, go back to the performance of Barbosa. I thought he did everything he needed to do. He had some great boxing exchanges in his own right. But for me, it was the cap kicks and uh, the footwork that helped him get that victory. Now this next one, Andre Muniz beats Jacare Salza in the first round, on bar, inverted. Now, it was a weird position because Muniz is falling off the back. As he's falling off the back, he traps the arm of Jacare, manages to trap Jacare's right arm. And it's one of those arm bars where if you hit it and the arm is on the hip, it becomes a lot tighter. So he's falling, he's got a trap, and Jacare is shaking him off as he's standing as opposed to going in and then pulling the arm out in a much more controlled manner, not having the entire body weight and hip pressure on your limb like that. And I was tweeting, I was like, as a, a specialist in the BJJ ace like Jacare, who's been around forever, you would think he would have known better in that situation. Obviously, mistakes happen. It's the heat of the moment. It's a fight. It's not a BJJ match. But it's just one of those positions where I think maybe he underestimated how tight the arm was in there and thought he could just, ah, I could just stand up and get my arm out. We've seen him with Jack Hermanson in a tight, tight guillotine where he turns his entire back and gives it up and gets out of the choke where most people would have been like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to go, go to sleep, take this nap, or I'm just going to tap and get out of here. I, I can live to fight another day. Jacare, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight this to the very end and get the hell out of here. Very similar situation in the sense of I'm going to fight this situation, get out of here to the very end. And I think it was just more of an underestimating of that position. And at 41 years old, I don't know if he's going to make the full recovery based on where that that break was near the radial nerve. They were showing pictures of it and the radial nerve, how much um, it controls the limbs and your fingers and all that. The movement of the fingers in that hand. So if that nerve gets damaged and he doesn't start to fire again and allow him to make that full recovery where he can use his hand again, that compromises his career, that compromises his longevity and quality of life. So hopefully it's not that severe and he can get back out there or at least just be normal for the rest of his life in terms of having full range and use of his arm again. Man, this sport is so crazy. We, Like I said, we play for keeps and I, I just don't like when people talk shit or say certain things because it's like, come on, man. Like... We're putting it all on the line to entertain the world, something we don't have to do, something that a lot of people wish they could do, but don't have the stones to do it. Or then they make up the excuse that oh, I can't do it because I have this, why, this, this, this. If you, it, to me, that's BS because if there, if there is a will, there is a way. And if you really, really want to make something happen, you're going to figure out a way to do it. Well, you want to find a way to get away and go party and do X, Y, Z and go do all your drugs or whatever it is that attracts your vices or whatever, you find a way to do it. So if you want to shut people up and say, oh, I can do that too, by all means, get your ass up off the couch and go do it, you know? Um, if you want to be judgmental and, and throwing shade at people who are in situations like this, is like, that's, to me, it's just, it's disgusting and that's just the way human beings are. And it seems like it's more in our country than it is in like, let's say like a Japan where people are watching the fights, they're super, super quiet. I don't want that. That's an extreme. But I just think those people in that culture, they're a lot more respectful of what they're watching and understanding and then clapping when people are passing guard and understanding what's going on. You got people who are booing because they're controlling the position for a little bit. It's, there's, there's a lot I could go on about. But again, that's what also makes the sport great because the diehard fans who just know everything and love everything and study the sport or whatever, or even if they don't study the sport, um, in terms of the martial arts, they study the sport in terms of knowing what people have done and accomplished over their career and lifetime, you know. So uh, I, I appreciate that. I just think people could be a little bit more respectful in situations like this or just to the fighters in general, man, because everyone's 
everyone's got their own problems and no one goes in there 100%. No one goes there without a baggage of living a regular life because we are still regular people. We live a regular life. Still got bills to pay. I still got to go pay my bills. I still got to go take out the trash. I still got to clean the house. I still got to do my own laundry. I still got to take the car to get fixed when it breaks down. I still got to go... Uh, take care of little siblings when I got to take care of little, little siblings. I still got mom that I got to take care of. It, we have regular lives. People, we still have kids. We still have our own stuff that, you know, we, we, we're we regular people too. Um, I know I could be a troll, but, you know, it's I troll just because I like to have a good time. And people troll me, so I troll them back, just having fun with it. But I do have uh, a side where it's like I understand the world a little bit differently and try to take it with a grain of salt in the sense of like, I understand we are all just such small people and there's so much we can do to, to better the world, leave it in a better place or impact the next generation and hopefully inspire them to do better. You know, so that's, that's kind of my motivation and what drives me and how I am as an individual and as a person. So when I see the other side of things, and I see people that are just shitty people just to be shitty people. I'm just like, I, I just don't get it. I can just I just can't relate to that. Even when I was a young knucklehead and I thought I was a, a gangster growing up and I, you know, I thought I was a, a blood, you know, a, a fake blood. Because um, I, you know, by affiliation, that type of thing. Um, I still had a, a humane side. Like when someone's hurt, yo, man, like I want to try to help that person out, you know, but... You can still be a tough guy and just not be a dick. So it is what it is, man. People, people are going to be people. Uh, now this next fight with Lando Venata versus Mike Grundy. I, I don't want to go. Th- I didn't want to go through this whole card, but um, I guess we're going to. Uh, Lando Venata versus Mike Grundy. This was a good fight. Grundy putting on the pressure with the, the takedown attempts after takedown attempts. One thing I will point out: DC said it's very, very discouraging for a high-level grappler like Mike Grundy to not be getting these takedowns. And it can really be messing him up psychologically. Disagree, disagree, disagree. DC, you are wrong. You look at a guy like Gregor Gillespie. You look at a guy like myself. You look at a guy like Marab. Guys who shoot over and over and over. That is part of the game plan. The game plan is to keep the pressure on you. Keep you thinking about the takedown. Because once you stop shooting because you don't get one takedown, you're no longer a grappling threat. Now it's a stand-up kickboxing fight or a boxing fight. Whatever it is style that your, your opponent is, you are forced to fight that style. The point of the takedown attempts, even if it's failed, your opponent has to respect it and he has to be on his P's and Q's to understand when to sprawl, to understand that he can't just get everything for free because there is a, a, a legitimate takedown of threat. And if the guy can really submit you, it keeps you honest in every single aspect of a wrestling grappling exchange because there's no way in hell you want to give up a position and be on your back for a long period of time because that is the fight right there. So that is the battle. The battle isn't necessarily, I only got one out of 20 takedowns. Oh, I only got one out of five takedowns. I'm going to shoot 100 times because I'm in shape to shoot 100 times. Grundy's going to shoot 100 times because he's in shape to shoot 100 times. He's not going to be discouraged. A guy like Gregor Gillespie, who's a D1 national champ, four-time All-American, you think because he's fighting Diego Ferreira, BJJ Black Belt, threatened with leg locks and all kinds of submission attempts, because he doesn't get one takedown, he gets a single leg, Diego kicks his leg out, he's out, that Gregor's going to stop shooting? No, that's madness. That is part of the game plan. I'm not looking to have a striking battle with you. I'm looking to keep the pressure on you, take you down multiple times, and if I can get to a position of dominance where I can hit the ground and pound and get you out of there or get a submission, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be discouraged because I don't get a takedown. And this is not a shot at DC. I just thought that... Someone like him, who's made a, a, a name over himself with his takedowns and slamming people over his head over and over, even if he didn't get a takedown, maybe it's different for heavyweights where if you don't get a takedown, it's discouraging because you get more tired. Maybe like seeing like his teammate like Cain Velasquez and his fight with like Fabricio, even though that was at altitude. It's a difference when you're fighting a heavyweight versus 45, 35, 25, 170, etc. You think Khabib, when, when Edson Barbosa stops the takedown and gets out of one takedown attempt, Khabib, is, Khabib literally does this to the fight. Okay, walks you down, he does the whistle thing, whoo, jumping, flying knee, then he's hitting you with the front kick, and then he's, blah, 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 he's doing the, the stutter step fake, and then getting you off guard, getting you rattled, you put your hands up, don't know what he's about to do, because it looks like he's going up top, then he attacks the leg, takes you down. That's not discouraging. That's like, hey man, I understand that the fight's not a sprint. 
It's a marathon. I gotta take my time and methodically break you down. And eventually, if I don't get the first takedown, I chain wrestle and get the second, blah, blah, blah. Grunny just needed one takedown and needs to get the control. We saw him get that front headlock on Venado. I was like, yo, this could be the fight in the third round. And it's very, very close. I don't know how they're going to score because Grundy was landing the harder strike, but Venata was landing the fluid, continuous volume. Beautiful footwork, defending takedowns. And while he was defending takedowns, some of them he was landing some couple short shots, but it did look like Grundy was pushing forward and controlling. And controlling such a weird word or term to use because you could say Venata was controlling with his footwork. And, and getting out of there, being clean and crisp. But when Grundy was landing, Grundy was landing big, popping the head back hard of Venata. But I did think Venata was winning. So that 30-27 going to Mike Grundy was very, very odd. I thought it could have been, it should have been 29-28 because of that, that uh, third round. But then even in the third round, when he gets the front headlock, Venata gets up. He's trying to now switch to a guillotine, and Venata steps in. Body locks in a guillotine, uses his, I think it was his right leg to knock out the knee of uh, Grundy and slams him down hard to the canvas, even though he got back up in like eight, 10 seconds. It was still a beautiful reversal and sweep to, to get a takedown like that in that position over the grappler in Grundy. So Venata did some beautiful things. Grundy did some good things. I thought Grundy lacked volume. He didn't look like he was fatiguing. I think Venata slowed down in that third round, which allowed Grundy to even get on that front headlock in the first place because he did a beautiful job defending a lot of those other takedowns. I just didn't like that it was so much on, oh, man, Grundy's getting discouraged because he can't get... I'm like, clearly the guy's not discouraged because he's shooting 20 more times. He doesn't give a shit. He's trying to get the takedown. If he could get one takedown, that could be the fight. And it looked like he trained for that type of approach because... Lando has done a great job in terms of his takedown take defense. It's not like a lot of guys take him down and throw him around. You know, he's not the easiest guy to get to the, to the, to the canvas, you know. So congrats to Venata getting it done at 45. This could be a, a, a good wake-up call for the, for the division to have a high-level striker like him now in, in the division and fighting a guy like Grundy who had a very, very difficult time of getting him down and keeping him down can prove a lot of uh, problematic problems, problematic problems, could prove a big issue for a lot of guys in this featherweight division. So that was a fun fight. And um, like Vanessa, it wasn't his most stellar performance, but man, you got it done. You got the W. You look good doing it against a very, very tough guy who people might've thought would have been the kryptonite for Mr. Groovy. Uh, Jordan Wright, beautiful finish. Um, Pickett hurt him early, went to the clinch, tried to take him down. I'm not sure why, but Jordan Wright, the ninja, hit his elbows, side of the head, and finished it. it hit, he hit him with the Travis Brown elbows. There's not much of a breakdown to do for that. So Jordan Wright looked good and got it done. Andrea Lee versus Shevchenko. This was a fascinating one because I didn't see this one going like that. I thought it would have been a lot closer. We know the striking is good of Shevchenko. We know she's a couple-time Muay Thai champion. They always say it on the broadcast. Her sister is obviously the current reigning and defending champion, multiple-time defending champion in Valentina Shevchenko. Andrea Lee said, I don't give a shit. I'm not fighting your sister. I'm fighting you. Trying to be the bully. Very, very close first round. Shevchenko had some moments when the tie clinch, landed some beautiful knees to the body. Andrea Lee eventually got out, landed some good strikes of her own. Creates the, the, start, the, the flurry in round two. Uh, hits a spinning back fist slash elbow or form. Shevchenko grabs her, and Andre Lee just grabs the arm and just hits a nice, beautiful, kind of like a judo throw and tosses her to her back. They get to a scramble, get back to the feet, and then she hits like a headlock, gets inside control, and eventually steps over into that mount, uh, mounted triangle. I thought the fight was over right there because she wasn't pulling on the head, though, so it caused the fight to go a little bit longer than it probably needed to. She was laying beautiful elbows in that situation, and I, I just thought it, it was kind of reminiscent of Gaethje versus... Khabib and the way she stepped over beautifully into that from the mount right into the mounted triangle and then rolled over trying to finish the triangle attempt. She did a great job at the end where she, I think she heard the clappers and then finally transitioned the arm that was inside to the outside and started to attack an arm bar as she hit in and started to roll and turn over and that's what caused Antonina to tap. Beautiful transition, beautiful jiu-jitsu and it looks like Andre Lee is finally like making that huge statement and, and coming into her own and, and getting a win like that. Uh, so congrats to her. This is a lot easier than on the couch, putting it on my knee. 
Um, let's see, Andrea Lee, wow, she was on a three-fight losing skid to Mataferi, uh, Laura Murphy, and to Joanne Calderwood. Calderwood and Murphy were both split decision losses, though. <clears throat> uh, this next one, uh, Gina Mazzani versus Priscilla Cachetta. That was, this was, wow, wow. Um, I've seen people get tired. I've seen people get hurt. But this was, um, this was both. Manzani just looked like she just, from the very beginning, she kind of like backtracked and was kind of on the retreating end of the fight where it didn't look like she really wanted to engage unless it was a striking situation. And I think that's where she kind of gave her opponent a little bit of confidence. I, I think she could have trusted her hands a little bit more, but talk about the adversity and for Cachetta to come back when the fight was looking very, very tough for her and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep staying the course. And eventually she was able to find a chink in the armor of Manzani, landed some beautiful right hands against the cage in the second round. Even in the first round, she gave um, Priscilla some moments where she landed some strikes before Gina level changed and power drived her to the, hit her with the, the rhino spear and took her down to the canvas again in the first round. I don't agree with the stand-up. I, I think... Beltron, the ref, was wrong in this situation because she was in a half guard. Your opponent needs to get up. You can't take away the position if the person on top is actually throwing strikes. If it's like little pitter-patter strikes like this and it's like doing this, rabbit punches, okay. But how long were they doing that for? If they were just in transitions where Priscilla tried to get up and she almost hit like a sweep and then got put back into guard... That happened maybe a couple seconds before Beltron stood the fight up. Constantly, okay, action, ladies. I need you to work, ladies. For working to finish, ladies. It's like, what do you want us to do? Knock each other out with one punch? It's, it's a fight. Let us fight. Let the fight develop. You can't force the action as the third party in there because you want to give the fans an exciting fight. You're involving yourself a little too much, in my personal opinion, uh... You took away a very good position for Mazzani that she worked hard to get and gave Priscilla pretty much the, the best chance she had to win the fight, which was standing, where, okay, you're, you're favoring the fight on the stand-up side because you're taking the position away from the fighter that worked hard to get the position and the fight to the ground where she's more dominant. She's controlling. GSP did that multiple, multiple times, and those fights weren't stood up. Obviously, we're in a different era and time period, but still... You got to give the opponent on top an opportunity, a chance to work. If the guy or the fighter on bottom wants to sit there and guard, keep their legs crossed, and not attempt to, to frame, shrimp, or get up, that's on them. If I'm going to sit there and I'm going to be able to punch you to the body, punch you to the head, try to land some short elbows and control you, land some short elbows and control you, that's on you. You have to get up. I don't need to be actively trying to force a pass and put myself in compromising position Why I just expended a lot of energy and worked super hard on my timing, not getting knee to the face, not getting front kick to the face, getting caught with an uppercut to get a, a high-level takedown in a stressful situation because you got to worry about all those X factors while shooting and getting that takedown. When you get in and now you completed the task, you got the fight to the ground, and you're going to take it away because the person on bottom can't do anything to get up. I don't think that's right. My personal opinion, you can't say she was stalling the fight. You can't say she wasn't doing anything. You can say that they're smaller people and the, the impact of the strikes didn't look as devastating. So it looked like nothing was happening. It, it, that's complete BS. She was landing strikes. She, they were transitioning. They just got to the full guard. And I want to say like 20 seconds and then the ref stood that up. I, I don't think that was the right call. But that's just my personal opinion. And but again, Kashara got a, she got a break, and she made everything she she made she made do with the opportunity that she was given from the referee. She didn't she didn't tell the ref, "Hey, stand it up." Well, she kind of did when she looked at the ref, kind of like, "What what are we doing? Like stand us up, kind of thing." Um, I, I just don't think the ref made the right call in that particular situation. But it is what it is. She got the break, and she made do with it what she could, and she got the finish. In a very, very big way. Now, I know Gina was a huge favorite in that one. And I think the biggest betting favorite on the card, which is kind of bizarre. I, I know Gina's, Gina's tough since she's back in Missouri, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, with uh, James Krause and her husband, I think, um, Tim Elliott. 
I think she's gotten a lot better, doing a lot better, was coming into her own. But I do think this fight in particular, I, I, I don't think a lot of Gina's fights were like the greatest um, like display of, what would you even call it? <sighs> Stand-up skills. I think she's when she's grappling, she's strong. She seems like she's very, very imposing, knows exactly what she's doing down there. And I just think it was a little unfortunate that the ref took away that position because it seemed like there was some influence from the crowd noise. I, I don't know. That's what it sounded like and it felt like to me. Now, this other one, Crystal Giagos versus Sean Soriano. This was a great fight, man. Soriano looked like a world beater after his stint away from the UFC and him getting back, taking this fight on short notice. He's now 14 and 7. Uh, he's 31 years old. I think he was out of the UFC for like six years. Let me see. 2014 made his debut. He got cut after he lost to Charles Rosa in 2015. Um, fought for Legacy for a couple times. Yes. And now he was back in 2021. So he was gone for a while, man. He fought a lot of tough competition, got some good wins, got um, a, lot, a couple losses here and there, but he's back, took it on short notice, and he looked good, man. Looked very, very crisp, very, very poised. Looked like the veteran in there in terms of the striking season, but then Chris Giagos just, as soon as he had the opportunity to get the takedown, switching stances back and forth, uh, he got, like, I, DC made a good read. Whenever he went to that conventional style, he was, he was looking to shoot, and pretty much that's what he did, and he got a beautiful takedown, and once he got his hands around his neck, Latched on quick, put the fight away, and beautiful. The, the great thing about that, that submission for me was if you watch, when he goes to that Darsh, he goes for it. As he sits it, he latches on the leg and pinches with his legs to keep that leg trapped, which keeps Soriano in a tight position and makes it very, very difficult for Soriano to create space by pushing away the hips and trying to open the arms and get big. That's what I do when I'm in the dart stroke position. Because it's not like the anaconda. The anaconda choke is on the same side. You can kind of fight the hands a little bit. But the dart stroke, you know, you got this arm. And your arm that's locked like this is on my back and climbing. So I can't really reach like this. And I can't reach like this. So I got to get big and open. Push the hips away. And as I push the hips away, I can't go straight. Because now I'm, I'm bringing my shoulder into my carotid. But I could push the hips away, and then I could open my elbows and try to create a little bit of space and get a little bit of oxygen to take away the blood choke from cutting off that circulation to my brain. Fun detail, fun fact for you guys. So anytime you're in that position, try checking that out and, and seeing how that works out for you. Other than that, man, it was a great fight card. We got a big one coming up. Um, this one with Rob Font versus Cody Garbrandt. Now... I actually got to hang out with Rafant at a mutual friend's house at uh, this past weekend. Him and his team, Calvin Cater, Tyson. I forget the other coach's name. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, it was cool. I can still kind of tell that there was a little bit of like, we're both at the top of the division. We know what's up. You know, he wins this fight. This is a big, big opportunity. He's probably one of the next guys in line for a title shot. You know, Cody Garbrandt wins. You know, they're probably gonna put him back in there as well so this is a big opportunity for himself you know so I think we kind of still had that like that vibe of we knew we knew what was up but we, it was very respectful we talked a little bit we didn't really like talk anything like fighting or whatever in the sense of like our division or anything like that I just asked him how he's feeling and that was pretty much it this fight is good though um I did talk like talk to his coach a little bit about it and we didn't like share any details I was like yeah I think it's a very good fight you guys got a tough one coming up or fun, I think I said tough or fun. Um, I might have said fun. I said, you guys got a fun fight coming up. Uh, the only thing is, I think on paper, you guys are matched up so evenly well. I think for that matchup in particular, the only thing I see could be the standout difference. Really, just based on the, the way both guys have fought in their previous fights, is Cody Garbrandt's hand speed. But he's a lot smaller for the division. And I think Garbrandt and I have one of the longest reaches for 135. If I'm not mistaken, okay, so Rob Font is 5'8". He's uh, 33 years old. His reach is 71 and a half inches. And Garbrandt, I think, is like a 68 or 69. Garbrandt is 29 years old. He's 5'8". And he's 65 and a half inch with his reach. So the reach and the hand speed. 
I think that's going to be the story of the fight. Font's a little bit slower, in my personal opinion. If you watch the fight with Marlon Marais, where he's throwing those punches, they look like Marlon can see him, but Marlon just, his brain just couldn't register to get the hell out of the way. The uppercut, the right hook. And uh, Rob does this thing where he's like a traditional boxing, everything's tight, and he jabs where his thumb stays like this. I, I like to mimic fighters and imitate them a little bit. And he jabs and it's super clean, just boom, back in, boom, 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 back in, touching, landing big shots. He's got big hands. And I think that could be the difference for him to help him get his keys to victory. I think if Font could touch Garbrandt cleanly in the first round, he could get some respect. It's a five-round fight and force Garbrandt to maybe revert to his wrestling, which we never really see. I think Garbrandt has been fighting a lot smarter lately. He's not really a kicker. Rob Font's not really a kicker, and this is kind of the things I was telling the coach. We didn't get, like I said, I didn't go into detail. I just said the very skeleton of it, where he had nine of the one that really kicks. Garbrandt tries to do that, like, weird chopping, sweeping kick sometimes. I don't know if he's just doing that just to throw the guy off. He's very explosive. And he's a good wrestler, but he doesn't really wrestle. He's not really looking to do jujitsu where he's going for guillotines or rear naked chokes, that type of thing. He's just looking to get into a good old-fashioned fist fight. And that's what I like about him. So he's got good hand speed. Um, Garbrandt's typically, like, you know, he's here. His hands are down here. Uh, he'll snap that jab now of late when he fought a Sun Style. Very technical, very methodical now. Working with Mark Henry, they dialed him in. And he fought a more patient, technical fight. Uh, staying straighter with his punches. At times when he threw that one from his socks, hit him with the sledgehammer in the kitchen sink with the right hook from hell. I, I don't think he could do that against a guy like Rob Font. I think he's going to need to keep his hands and, and keep the punches straighter so he can land a lot cleaner. Uh, one thing I will say, Font had a little bit of difficulty with the fight with Sergio Pettis. And not in the sense that he was in any trouble for the most part, but Pettis is super tricky. He has those step-in switch kicks where he's coming over the top behind his punches, hiding them very well, but Pettis is obviously the smaller and um, uh, person in there when he fought Rob Font. He was fighting at flyweight for a very long time, but one of the top flyweights, and then going up to Vandaweight when he fought uh, Rob Font, you could just see the strength difference and the reach advantage difference in that matchup where it was a skillful opponent, but Rob Font was clearly the bigger guy, and you could tell he just hit a lot harder then Pettis was able to deliver in his shots that were clean in comparison to Rob Font landing cleanly against uh, Sergio Pettis. So I think if Font could stay long with those one-twos and utilize that jab and keep Cody at the end of his punches, utilize some fakes and keep Cody guessing because Cody's doing a good job of, of being defensively responsible now. But we still have to wonder if that chin is all the way there yet. And maybe he's doing smarter training with sparring and not sparring as much, giving himself more time to let the brain recover and not taking as much damage, which gives him a better shot at taking punches, a better chance to take punches in these fights when you need them. You don't need to use those up in the sparring room. You need to have that in your back pocket where you know if the tough gets going, you could bite down on your mouthpiece and you could trade, you could eat something, and you could deliver something, and hopefully you're the last man standing when the dust settles. This is a very interesting fight because of that. Um, I don't know who's going to get it done. Part of me leans towards Garbrandt, but... I think Font has the tools to win. Uh, Font has been hurt before by Pedro Munoz, but Pedro Munoz hits like a Mack truck. He knocked out Cody Garbrandt with that one shot uh, and put him out. Uh, maybe it wasn't really one shot, but he dropped him, sent him spiraling, and then followed up with those short punches. But that fight was pretty much done after that one right hand that literally shut down the entire system uh, when he fought Garbrandt. But when he fought Rob Font, same thing. He caught him with a, a great punch in their exchanges. As they were exchanging, he caught Font cleanly. Font got rattled. He shot in. Pedro Munoz snatched the neck up, put him, um, choked him out because he tapped. He didn't go to sleep. He tapped. And it was, it was a quick tap at that. So Font's grown over the years. He's fought a lot of tough guys in this division. I think he fought Charles Oliveira as well. I said Charles Oliveira. <laughs> I think he fought John Lineker as well. Yes, he did. He fought John Lineker as well, which was an interesting fight. So he's fought a lot of tough guys, man. He fought George Roop, knocked him out, first round. Joey Gomez, who I don't know who that is. I don't remember who that is. Lost to Lineker, fought Matt Schnell, knocked him out. Douglas Andrade, Guillotine Choke, round two. Lost to Munoz, fought Thomas Almeida, knocked him out. TKO, Asuncao lost by decision. Um, Pettis, Ricky Simone, tough grappler. Marlon Moraes knocked him out. So he's, he's come a long way, and this is his opportunity to shine. So we'll see what happens with this one. Big fight, big 
scrap. Now this next one, uh, Jan versus Esparza. I think this has title shot implications for it, just based on where everything is at. Jan, I believe she's undefeated in the UFC right now, and she is on fire, 13-1, also from China. China. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six fight win streak in the UFC and still on a ridiculous winning streak as well. Carlos Sparza, this is a tough one for her. Striker versus grappler. And, and she is 33 years old. She's on a one, two, three, four fight win streak. Even though I do think that one, mm, well, she had a tough one. What was it, the last one? Marina Mark Rodriguez, that was a tough fight who just beat Michelle Watterson. Yeah. Other than that, there's some good fights on this. Jackie Manson versus Edson Shabazian. Bill Algeo versus Ricardo Ramos. Um, Claudio Silvia versus Court McGee. I think Silvia, this is a good opportunity for him to get back in the win column over Court McGee. Um, Court McGee is a tough dude. who has a very, very interesting story, fun story, but I do think it's going to be a tough one for him. He just hasn't looked great in terms of the development of the skill set of the fighters moving into the, the later era of MMA and people just getting better and better and better. A fighter to look out for, Demir Ismagulov versus Rafael Alves. That's going to be a barn burner. Definitely don't miss that one. Um, not sure who Alves beat last. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Mike Chizano, Pat Sabatini, um, Ismagulov. Oh, he's from the Contender Series. Okay. I got a guillotine choke in the second round, so it should be a good one. should be a good one. Ismagalov is a tough dude. Uh, and Kalaboa versus Shah. I don't know who Shah is, but Kalabo, Kalibo, okay, Joshua. The, he, I watched his last fight, and it was fun as hell, even though he, oh, split decision. Split draw with Charles Jordan, but it's still a ridiculous fight. A ridiculous fight. All right, so that's pretty much it. Uh, as always, guys, if you like my shit, subscribe to my shit. We're spinning breakfast, baby. Bah, 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 bah. Ah. Thank you guys for always tuning in. I'm going to try to drop in the comments um, today. I got to get ready to go get some PT work in. And I'm going to get this up for you guys right now because I do my own editing. And yeah, hope you guys have a beautiful Monday. Get to it. Get to work. So you guys stay blessed. Peace. That's the show. You ain't got to go home, but you got to get to stepping. And remember... We bring the noise because the people want the funk. Until next time, this is the Weekly Scraps. Bye-bye.